The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Our scripture reading this morning, we're doing things obviously a little differently. You'll see that we're singing a song after this about God with us, his glory with us. Our scripture reading this morning comes from God's word in Exodus chapter 40, looking at verses 20 and following. This is the very word of God, breathed and inspired and given by him to us. He took the testimony and put it in the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set it up and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. And he put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set all the lamps before the Lord as the Lord God had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offerings at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. And when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord God commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire on it by night in the the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. In John's gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him, not anything was made that, not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're going to introduce a new song this morning, speaking about God's glory with us. So I invite you to stand and sing together. There are certain things within any profession that you tread lightly into. Preaching a sermon on the glory of God and the presence of his people is one of those such things in my profession. For it is never truly able to be fully comprehended or grasped or even given a good enough treatment. And so this morning as we come to the end of our journey through Exodus... We've been walking together for now months along the path and the pilgrimage of a people who started as slaves, 
enslaved to Egypt and the power of Egypt, God's people, under the tyranny of a pagan king who ravaged them and abused them and was destroying them. And they cried out to God for deliverance. They cried out after 400 years and said, Lord, come, be faithful to your promises. Lead us out of here. This isn't our home. This isn't our land. We want to go to where you promised us a land flowing with milk and honey. Lord, would you come? And God heard their cry. He says he raised up a mediator, Moses, an unlikely of all mediators, from within their midst. And Moses went and spent 40 years of preparation out in the desert where he learned, where he wondered, I imagine, at times, God, what are you doing? Where he experienced God. He saw the power of God and the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God there at the burning bush. And God's presence there. And he heard his voice speaking to him and preparing him and sending him along with his brother Aaron back into Egypt to go. And they did signs and wonders in the name of the Lord and overthrew Egypt and led God's people out to the Red Sea and then through the Red Sea And watched and witnessed the very power of God. Who said, I'm going to destroy Pharaoh for my glory's sake. That you will see how great I am. That I am greater than even the greatest kingdom on this earth. Greater than any self-proclaimed God and deity in this world. And I'm inviting you out. I'm redeeming you. That idea of purchasing you from underneath slavery. Buying you back. I am redeeming you. For the express and explicit purpose of worshiping me. Nothing else. Not to make your life better. Not to make your life happier. uh, Not to take care of all the little issues that you have going on. But my express purpose in sending a mediator uh, to come and to redeem you. And to lead you out and to destroy your enemies and my enemies. And to bring you into freedom, into glorious freedom. Was that you could worship me. And that's the same story that we have. That we, humanity, have been under the tyranny of a slave master, sin and death. Under the rule of the law. And we've cried out for a redeemer. For a mediator. To come on behalf of God in our place. And to lead us out. And he sent Christ his son. The true Moses. Came and destroyed all of our enemies. And all of his enemies on the cross. And has now led us into the glorious freedom. For freedom Christ has set you free. Paul wrote. But the freedom is designed for us to worship God, to bring him worth and value, to to exalt his glory. The word glory in the Old Testament is the word kavod, which is a word that means weightiness or heaviness or otherness of God, that there's a significance to God. When God says in the Ten Commandments, do not take my name in vain, what he's saying is do not take my name, the weightiest most all-consuming, powerful name that has ever been spoken. Do not take it, and vain really says, do not take it lightly. 
Do not steal its weight from my name with the manner in which you live. Do not steal the weightiness of my character, of my reputation in the world with the light and flippant manner in which you pursue me. So do not do that. One of the Ten Commandments. Wow, how many of us? We could stop right there, huh? And pause on how lightly we take and bear the name of Christ and don't give it the weight that it deserves. And in the New Testament, the word for glory is doxa, doxology. That idea of wonder or splendor, uh, of the greatness of God, of who he is. And so now we are coming uh, to the end of the book of Exodus. And it's quite an interesting end, isn't it? Seemingly anticlimactic. I mean, think about what's gone on. There have been battles. There have been enemies. There have been miracles. There's been a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. There's been water coming out of a rock. And there's been bitter water with a tossing of a stick into it. And Mara becoming this beautiful, sweet water. There's manna and there's quail and there's God's provision for it. And it's all leading to this incredible climax, this culmination of the story. And you know what the culmination of the story is? They're pitching a tent. They're building a tabernacle. And for some of you, you've read this and went, is there a chapter 41? Isn't there something more great than that? Isn't there something more splendid than that? Isn't there, didn't Moses go uh, to story writing 101, which says you need to end with a high note, especially in an adventure like this. You can't end on this low note. Folks, the reality is this. Unless you understand the significance of the tabernacle, you don't understand the point of the book of Exodus. And if you don't understand uh, the significance of the tabernacle, you don't understand the point of this whole book. That you see the culmination of God's work by freeing his people, both in the Exodus events and today currently, was to be present with them. What an amazing reality that the God of the universe could condescend enough to come and to dwell in their midst. Set political wranglings aside and consider just the office. If the President of the United States of America was to come and to worship with us today, that would be awesome to have him sitting here in our place, we would have the president of the United States. That'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Anybody else think that'd be pretty cool? Boy, you guys are politically lost. I grew up with this threat. Billy, have manners just in case you ever get invited to the White House. I've always looked forward to an opportunity to have a president in my presence. I think that would be awesome and somewhat awe-inspiring to have the most powerful man in the free world sitting with me. And you know what would be even cooler than that? Is if he said, hey McCutcheon, after this meeting, I'm coming to your house. I'm going to have dinner with you and your family at your table. That would be awesome. My neighborhood would hate it. We'd break all the covenants. There'd be cars parked on the road and there'd be all this kind of stuff. But it would be awesome that the President of the United States would be at my table 
God is saying, I am so much greater than any seated president. And the culmination of my redemptive story for you is that I can be present in your life and not destroy and consume you. That the God of all light and the God of all power and the God of all holiness would come down and tabernacle, live among us. And we would behold his glory and not be destroyed. Folks, that's the hope of life. That God would dwell with you. And so we're going to look at a couple of things in the few minutes that we have together today. And the first thing is this. Why do we even need a tabernacle? What's the purpose of having a tabernacle? Why is it so important? Then we're going to look and touch uh, that there are barriers for us to enter into the tabernacle. That there are barriers in place that keep us from God's presence. And then finally, the last thing is that Christ makes a way through the barriers for us to enter into the very presence of God and to be with him. Let's pray. Father, we ask now, I ask now, that you would come by the power of your spirit and you would teach us by your word. We would see your glory. And that we would be forever changed. That the God of the universe is not someone to be trifled with or diminished. And so we come and we praise you that you've invited us through Christ, our Savior and mediator. Amen. So the first question, why do we need a tabernacle at all? And I don't have time to fully express this one, but the answer is this. We need a tabernacle to be able to see through to the glory that exists beyond this world. That the tabernacle is designed to see through into a reality that exists beyond this world. You see, we all know that there's something beyond this world. One philosopher wrote uh, that we are the first civilization uh, in all of history that believes that this world is not the product of the supernatural world and that we weren't created. We believe we just happened, that we were just sort of an accident. It just happened that there's no purpose and we weren't designed for any purpose. That our children are growing up in a day and an age where they're being taught uh, that this world has no meaning or purpose at all. And the tabernacle was established and is continually established to point us to something beyond this reality. That there is a reality, capital R, beyond this world that gives purpose and meaning to this world. It defines this world. It explains it. It helps us understand what we are, who we are, and why we are here You know, there's a sense in which philosophy is struggling with this reality now. They're struggling with the fact that if there's something, if there's not something beyond this world, then you can basically explain away everything within this world. One philosopher whose name was Alistair McIntyre, excuse me, Alistair McIntyre wrote this. How do you decide whether this is a good or a bad watch? You have to know what it's for. You have to know what it was built for, what it was designed for. For example, it's, a, it's terrible at hammering nails. Don't try it. 
It's terrible at hammering nails, but it's very good at telling me the time. Therefore, until I know what it's built for or what it's designed for, it's impossible to even talk about whether it's a good or a bad watch. You see, you have to understand the overall purpose. You have to see the greater picture. You have to understand purpose and meaning in order to be able to engage. You can't even say that something is right or wrong if there's not a reality outside of this world. If you want to have some fun, maybe in my construed way of fun, go to a college campus and go into maybe a freshman philosophy class, but most likely a sophomore philosophy class. And ask them, based on evolutionary theory, based on evolutionary philosophy, based on existentialism, based on a philosophy that there is nothing beyond this world, that this world is all that there is, uh, that we are the ones who define right from wrong, uh, that the stronger win in the end, and that's how it works, that the weak uh, fail, and, and that's how life progresses and evolves. Ask them to explain to you why Hitler was wrong. Ask them to explain to you why Pol Pot was wrong. Ask them to explain to you why Stalin was wrong in the extermination of millions of Christians. Ask them to explain that. Because they're going to try to explain it away as if there's a reality beyond this world. But if they say there is no reality beyond this world, then if I determine that one race is no longer necessary for this world, then I have the freedom within my philosophy to exterminate that race, correct? If there's nothing beyond this world, how can you tell me that all races are created equal? How can you tell me that there's any rights that are inalienable rights of anyone? Because there's nothing beyond this world. There's no reality beyond this world that defines this world or gives it meaning or purpose in this world. C.S. Lewis put it this way. You cannot go on explaining away everything forever. You will find that you have explained away explanation itself. Nietzsche wrote these words and said that every truth claim is really a power play. And if that's true, then so are his words. So why should I listen to him? Freud went further and said that everyone's view of God is really just a psychological projection helping you deal with your guilt and your insecurity. But if that's true, then so is his view. So why should I listen to him? I can explain away everything if there's no reality beyond this world. You see, we see through everything and find that nothing has meaning. In the construction of the temple, God was saying unequivocally that there is a glory beyond this world. That there is something greater out there. And in order to understand anything, to understand yourself, to understand others, to understand social constructs, to understand this world or this life, you have to have him present in the center of your reality. Why is the tabernacle present? Because it points you to something beyond this world. We live in a time uh, within the church. It's very interesting. You see some of the glamorous big churches that are growing and all the bells and whistles and all the lights and the sound shows uh, and all of those things which we are not ever going to be. And they're growing at some level, but interesting, you know where they're not growing? They're not growing with the millennials. They're not growing with the teenagers and the 20-somethings as much. You know what churches are growing with millennials, 19, 20, 21, those, that group? Churches with high liturgies. 
the Greek Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, the High Lutheran and Methodist churches. Because what our younger generations are pining for, what they are desperate for, is something that transcends this world. They've grown up without a parent in the home. They've grown up with no meaning. They've grown up with everything is, is just up for grabs. And so they go in and they could care less about the theology of the word, sadly. But what they love is the theology of the liturgy. They love that their God is greater than themselves. And they want to believe that there's something beyond this world. Is God approachable? Is he here with us? Can you get close and intimate with him? Yes, but he's still the transcendent God who brings meaning and defines your life. And that's what the tabernacle is all about. So folks, I want you to understand both his transcendence, his greatness, his glory, and his eminence, his very presence with us brought together in the tabernacle. That's why the tabernacle exists or else we could explain everything else away. A friend of mine put it this way. He called it the 38 special philosophy class. If you say that nothing has meaning and all truth is relative, pull out a 38 special and put it to the forehead of the individual who's speaking. And say, in my philosophy, in my worldview, your life has no meaning and there's no such thing as murder and it's not wrong for me to do this. You'll find that that person all of a sudden has absolutes. There has to be an absolute. There has to be a reality beyond this world. But there are barriers to it. There are barriers in this tabernacle. Look at how it was designed. Look at the construction of it. It says that Moses went in and we began in verse 20. And if you went back and saw all of the things that the tabernacle was being erected, it was erected from the inside out. That's not how you build a home. You build a home from the outside in. Uh, You want to get up your walls. You want to get up the covering. And God was saying, no, this is different. I'm starting from the inside out and there's a room, the Holy of Holies. And it's not going to have a roof on it. And it's significant because it's showing that there's access to the true reality, the true God. And then I'm going to build out from there. And there's all these pieces and all of these things. uh, And there's furniture. And I'm sure you read that and you were going, this is so cool. This is the most interesting reading in my annual reading list. That when I get to talk about furniture and about settings. But if you just glazed by this, you miss some of the really awesome stuff. That basically what God was saying was that in the middle... That's where I am. At the very heart of it, in the very presence of your people, of us, there's God. But he put up an incredible amount of curtains and a maze and all these barriers that basically blocked anyone from getting to him. That you couldn't get there through all of the curtains. There was barrier after barrier, curtain after curtain between you and God. And then at the end it says that the glory of God fell. But guess where Moses was when the glory of God fell? It says that Moses couldn't go in. That Moses couldn't get there. How was he going to enter into the presence of God? And oh, I know you did this. And I'm sure your notes are full of all of the descriptions of the tabernacle. Because you realized, oh, the tabernacle points me back to the Garden of Eden. It points me back to where the presence of God was in perfection because it says all throughout that on all the furniture and all these different things, there were palm trees that were made there. Why would God want palm trees inside the tabernacle? And there were cherubim and there were angels 
And there were all these things that seemingly point us back to Eden. To a place where God was in all of his perfection, in all of his glory, in all of his beauty. That he was there with his people. He was there with Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve were in right relationship with God, every other relationship was right. Their relationship between husband and wife, between man and woman, between friends and society and in culture, it was all perfect and right when their relationship with God was right. But when the relationship with God was destroyed through their decision to go out on their own and to do their own thing, all of a sudden every other relationship began to crumble and to disintegrate. That word integration, the Garden of Eden was fully integrated. And then when sin entered, you see the process of disintegration happening and we experience it all the time. Anybody have a conflict, little or big, this week with another human being? Oh, come on, really? You haven't been on a roundabout, have you? Why is that conflict there? Because we're not back in Eden. Because there's disintegration. There's disintegration in race relationships, in the political relationships, in our own relationship with ourselves. And so we have this desire to get back to Eden. But isn't it interesting that God placed a cherub, an angel, at the edge of Eden after he expelled Adam and Eve with a flaming sword that says there's a barrier you can't get back. You can't get back into this relationship on your own. C.S. Lewis wrote it this way, that our lifelong longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but it's the truest index of our real situation. The sense that in this universe we are strangers the longing to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality. In the tabernacle, God is saying that he is back and he is present within humanity, but there are still barriers. They obeyed perfectly, and yet they still couldn't enter in. They couldn't get past the angel. They couldn't get back into Eden. So how does that happen? And this is our last point. And it's this. Christ makes the way possible. Back into the very glory of God. That Christ makes the way possible. That Christ cuts the pathway for us through the barriers. And the word became flesh. And the actual word is and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Christ is saying that he is the only way back into tabernacling, back into relationship with God. Christ made a lot of outrageous claims that didn't get him killed. He said, I can raise the dead. I can heal people. I can do this. You want to know the one claim that got him killed? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it back up. And the Jewish leaders said, kill him. Why? They knew what he was saying was, I'm the tabernacle. I'm the temple. If you want access into the Father's presence, if you want access to God, if you want your life to have any meaning at all, if you want to find redemption for your sins, if you want to find hope in this life, to find the very righteousness that is beyond yourself, you have to come through me. 
And they tore their clothing and they picked up stones to kill him and eventually nailed him to a tree. Because he was saying this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father. No one gets to enter in. Moses, you don't get to enter in to the tent of meeting. You don't get to enter into the Holy of Holies unless there's blood that is shed and that is on the Holy of Holies, that is on the mercy seat. All the imagery there from the Old Testament, right? Right here for us. Interesting, guess what's the next book of the Bible? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus teaches us the ceremonial sacrificial system to explain to them this is how you get in. It's through the blood of something else who takes your place. And John the Baptist, when he looked up there at the River Jordan and he saw Christ coming, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes us into glory. The Lamb of God who breaks down the barriers that I don't have to obey the law. I never could. That I don't have to be good enough. That I don't have to have a righteousness of my own. But I look to the Lamb of God who perfectly obeyed on my behalf. Who perfectly lived on my behalf and was crushed under His Father's hand. And His blood was spilled and it was the blood that was thrown against the altar. It was the blood that was smeared against the place where mercy was to come. And it's through Christ and Him only that we enter back into that. And some of you are saying, I knew it. You Christians, you say you have the exclusive only way to get to heaven. And yes, that's what we say. Because that's what our Lord and God said. And it is not me not loving you to tell you that. It is actually the most loving thing to tell you, quit trying to do it on your own. Quit trying to obey. Quit trying to erect your own tabernacles. Quit trying to erect your own temples that you could be good enough and it's your blood on the altar. That it's your blood that's there because it will never be acceptable enough to God. And so it is quite actually loving for me to say there is one pill for cancer and we have it. And if you take it, you'll be cured. And you can say, yeah, but I've got another doctor over here who says that he's a world-renowned specialist in cancer. He says, if I take this pill, I'm going to be cured. And we're going to go, it won't do it. It's not that I'm unloving or closed-minded or small. It's that I actually have the truth. And Jesus said, it is only through me that you get to enter back in. That you get to go back into Eden. Oh, what a great imagery from Robert Murray McShane, the wonderful Scottish pastor, when he said, our entrance into Eden is over the pierced body, bloodied by the sword of the angel. And we enter back into Eden over Christ. Are you tired of trying to get back in on your own? You've worked so hard. And you keep failing. And you're exhausted. Christ is saying, let me take you in. Trust in me. Trust in me. And let me be your glory. Christ is the only way to God. Who presents the only acceptable sacrifice to God. And then there's this really cool thing that I don't have time to fully develop. But I'm going to tell you this because it's awesome news. Then in the New Testament... The language shifts just a little bit and it says that he tabernacled with us and we beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And guess where he now takes up residence? In this building? It's not in this building, by the way, folks. 
This is a pretty cool building. It's great. I know it's missing a few things that some of you want. And, and it's cold this morning in here, but it was hot last week. Uh, and we've got issues. That's because it's never about a building. You know where he takes up residence? You are the temple of God. And the very glory of the Father has taken up residence within you. And that gives you more meaning and significance than anything else can ever give you. It is the most powerful reality that you can experience that the God of the universe has now. Oh, just think of what the people in the Exodus, if you had walked up to them, if you had time travel and you went back and said, here's something really cool going to happen. You know, this big fiery ball of stuff that's going to come down and it's the very presence of God and you can't even look at him and you can't even see him. Yeah, that's awesome, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to take up residence within your life. And it's not going to destroy you. You get to live within the daily presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you get to go out into the world and display his radiance for everybody. You know why we have a tabernacle? It points us beyond this world. It also points us to Christ who said, I'm going to take down every barrier for you and then I'm going to take up residence within you and you will be my glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of tents. Thank you for the beauty of simple structures and instructions that you give. Of palm trees carved and of cherubim of mercy seats and altars that all point to one thing and one thing only, our inability and your ability, that we are unable to sacrifice enough to get there and that we are in bondage for we serve something. And if it's not you and we're not freed through Christ to go and to worship and to, to enjoy this life, then we're enslaved. And so, Father, for all those who are here today, I pray that they would see Christ and they would look at him and behold his glory and they would be forever changed and it would be weighty and significant in their life and that we would be loving enough to go and tell the world that is lost that we have the key and the hope and the truth, the true reality that brings meaning to everything, Christ himself. We praise you and give you glory in his name. Amen. Let's stand and finish this morning as we sing of his glory together.